You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 447 of this podcast. Today is Saturday, August 6, 2022. And in this episode, we're going to talk about studying the Greeks and the Romans, where Western civilization is at right now, and especially Victor Orban coming to speak at CPAC in Dallas, Texas, this past week. But first of all, let me just say, I am almost finished up with The Histories by Polybius. I am hoping to wrap up the last few hours today, but that brings me to a question. Should I do a book review of The Histories by Polybius, or should I ask you all to just be impressed that I read the whole thing? What do you think? (laughs) Before you answer... I will assure you, my reason for asking is not because I read this and have nothing to say, nor because I read this book primarily to impress all of you. Probably a little bit of my reason is because I wanted to impress everyone with having read Polybius. But in all honesty, I have a question, I suppose you could say, as to how to summarize what it is that I've learned in Polybius. How do I sum it up? How do I tell you what I learned? How do I make that a value to you? Is it a value? Is it worth putting in the work to try and summarize Polybius? You tell me. (laughs) If you think it would be interesting, drop a line, send me a message, put a comment in on Facebook or wherever it is that you listen to this podcast And uh, we'll see what we come up with. But in any event, having just concluded Polybius, my friend Joseph Crampton has recommended that I next turn to Plutarch, Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans, I think is calling my name. And I got encouragement from my wife as well with this one, since our kids study Plutarch for school. We homeschool, and this is part of why we homeschool, because our kids can go through Plutarch, for instance, for example. And just from what I've heard so far of Plutarch in talking with my wife and talking with my kids, it seems like really enriching stuff. I get the impression Plutarch places a great deal of emphasis on telling stories from ancient Greece and Rome that have morals to them. And Not just that you're supposed to read between the lines and get at those morals on your own. He also tells the morals to the stories rather than just subjecting his readers to dry recitations of names and dates without effect. But Audible is telling me the copy of Lives I just bought is 83 hours and 11 minutes long. Of course, I'm not going to list it on... I'm not going to listen on normal speed. That would take 83 hours and 11 minutes at least. Uh, But I'll listen probably on double speed if the narrator is any good. And so even so, it'll take 41 and a half hours, if you can believe it. It's going to take a while. (laughs) It's not going to be, you know, next week I come back and I say, oh, it was great. You know, unless I'm saying, hey, the first tenth of it, maybe. The first twentieth of it was great. So it'll probably be a project that takes me the better course of uh, a year or more, I would guess. And I'll listen to other things as well. But stay tuned to this podcast. Given what I know of Plutarch, he does treat various lives in 
an episodic sort of a way. So as I have something to share with you that I think would benefit you, I will be bringing that in future episodes as we go. Probably not some big comprehensive uh, review of the whole of parallel lives of the noble Greeks and Romans, but probably just a little bit here and there as we go. Subscribe if you haven't yet. Follow on Facebook. Sign up for email updates on thegarrettashleymulletshow.com if you haven't already, and you will get access and notifications and all that as I release upcoming episodes. But I think this is actually... I think this is actually going to be the biggest audiobook title I have ever taken up. The biggest single audiobook title in any event. I have read other authors' accumulated cumulative works broken up in separate volumes. I still need to get back at some point to Will Durant's <clears throat> The Story of Civilization, but Robert Jordan's series was very, very long altogether. So also James Clavell's Asian Saga. The Wheel of Time was very long. The Asian Saga was very long, but I have never come across a book this long in a single volume. So why? (laughs) Right? You're probably wondering to yourself, why? Why would you do this to yourself? 83 hours. That's a very, very long book. That's longer than The City of God. That's longer than Alexis de Tocqueville, Democracy in America. Why would you subject yourself to that much Plutarch? Well, for one, I credit Victor Davis Hanson at his book, Who Killed Homer? Also, his Carnage and Culture, which explains the contrast between Western civilization and other competing civilizations, other non-Western civilizations throughout world history that the Greeks, the Romans the Spanish, the English, Americans, etc., have come into contact with and typically uh, conflict with. But also Oz Guinness's A Free People's Suicide and the Magna Carta of Humanity. Both of those works by Oz Guinness, both of those works by Victor Davis Hanson have caused me to want to read more source material on the Greeks and the Romans. Polybius, I just finished his most famous work, The Histories. Also, I will be undertaking Plutarch. Those are two of the big, big names. I've read a biography of Cicero. I haven't really read his work directly, but he's another one who has been hugely important to the development of Western thought and the unfolding of world history accordingly, as the West has achieved so much dominance on a global scale. But in trying to understand what to do about the ongoing decline of the West generally and the United States of America in particular, it seems wise to me that we would go back and study the intellectual roots of our civilization, not just those roots found in the Bible and church history, but also among the heirloom historical and philosophical works of the Greeks and Romans. That is what is driving me. That is what I hope to encourage you to join me in. I think that's a good project. If you need a little more persuading than I'm giving you right here and now, do pick up a copy of Victor Davis Hanson's Who Killed Homer. The subject there is classical studies, studies of the Greeks and the Romans. He is a professor of classical antiquity, classical works himself. And he explains the history of our treatment and coverage of the history of the Greeks and the Romans in Who Killed Homer. And what it really amounts to, what it really boils down to is non-Western ways of thinking embedded in Marxism and embedded in other competing ideologies which have been anti-truth, wanting so much to carry out revolution in the West, in the United States and European countries, that they 
had to find a way to wean our culture, to wean our society off of the Greeks and the Romans. Because you can't come away from reading Polybius or Plutarch or Cicero and conclude that the ideas of the radical left are sound at their root, at their foundation. You can't come away supposing that these things will work if we just apply the right technology or the right approach, the right system, or at a large enough scale, at a global scale. You can't come away from reading the Greeks and the Romans and all of the various things that they tried, sometimes successfully, sometimes very often, much more often unsuccessfully, and suppose that anything goes, that reality is something other than an objective fact to reckon with. We have to know reality in order to be able to effectively counter leftism. And yes, absolutely. God's word is our only infallible source. It's our only perfect and totally authoritative source of truth regarding what is good and what does the Lord require of us. But that doesn't mean that we should only be studying the Bible or that we should only be studying church history. If you study the Bible and if you study church history, you will find in a hurry that we don't only study the Bible and we don't only study church history. If you read the Bible, you will find these passing references the Apostle Paul makes to Greek poets and Greek philosophers as he's engaging them in discussion. He is falling back on, employing, utilizing his familiarity with Greek thought. And so also, when you read some of the New Testament literature, you just can't get away from the fact that some of that New Testament literature, whether we're talking epistles or we're talking gospel account, some of that New Testament literature, a great deal of it actually, is written differently to Greek converts to Christianity, to Gentile converts to Christianity. Well, how is it going to be written differently if you understand nothing of Greek thought and Greek ways of reasoning and Greek ways of seeing ourselves and one another and the world and God? Well, so also we have to understand that in the church, the Old Testament Jewish tradition, law, revelation, God's work in his chosen people, Israel, was combined with the rich tradition of critical thinking and philosophical inquiry that the Greeks were known by and known for. In the church, neither Jew nor Greek turned into both Jews and Greeks getting together and talking about Christ and forming community and forming a new civilization. If we don't take the time to study that civilization and recognize it as our own and recognize it as who we are, we will lose it. And we will have only ourselves to blame for losing it. It's our civilization to lose. And we ought to consider the parable of the talents and what the master has entrusted to us to invest wisely and well. But more on that as we go. Briefly, I'll say this. Once I finish up Polybius today, I hope, I plan on starting a book called Nudge by Richard H. Thaler and Cass R. Sunstein. Now, my reason for starting this work, and it's a much shorter one, and you will hear about it, my reason for starting this one is a certain unheard interview hosted by Freddie Sayers, his interview of Professor Susan Mitchie back in 2020, recently, as of last week, was republished and put into a update on the situation with Professor Susan Mitchie. Specifically, she has been tapped as a World Health Organization official to head up what is being called a nudge unit. Nudge theory 
is what the book I will be reading is all about. But the nudge unit is intent on figuring out how to essentially manipulate, call it what you will, use whatever euphemism you prefer, but essentially manipulate the masses of humanity across the globe into doing what the WHO thinks is in their best interest. And I want to play a little bit of a clip from this interview, and I want you to hear it for yourself, because if I don't do that, you might think I'm exaggerating, I'm making much ado about nothing, I'm filling in some gaps. Take a listen and hear it for yourself. Is that true? Are you a communist? My politics are not anything to do with my scientific advice. And um, I've never discussed my politics um, with uh, people like yourself. So nor am I going to now. Um, The important thing is that when one gives scientific advice, one does so uh, using the expertise one has, not going beyond the expertise, being transparent about um, what expertise you provide. And I think that um, the kind of articles you referred to um, are a really disturbing kind of uh, McCarthyite witch hunting, which I don't think should have any place in a liberal tolerant society. So notice here how she doesn't say no, right? She's asked, are you a communist? And her answer is not, no, I'm not a communist. Whatever would make you think I was a communist? That's absolutely not true. What she says instead is, no, I'm not going to answer your question. No, that has no bearing at all on the kind of public health advice I am offering. No, my opinion on these things does not need to be known by you, but I'm also going to tell you that, in effect, (laughs) we do consider what is going to promote diversity, equity, and inclusivity with our public health policies. So I'll play just another small clip here to prove the point, and you'll see what I mean. Do you see any correlation between those experts that are more comfortable with larger collectivist state-led interventions and a kind of left of center politics and a more laissez-faire, small government sort of right of center politics. Do you think inevitably those kind of ideas do end up creeping into policy ideas in the end? If you look at the uh, publications coming out from the behavioral group of SAGE, um, many, many of them talk about the problems of inequality in our society and the um, dangers of inequalities, the fact that the pandemic itself and the response have increased those inequalities and the need to reduce inequalities. And um, there's a large group on, um, on, we call it SPI-B, on the behavioral science uh, group. And um, we never talk about each other's politics. Uh, I assume there's a, a very broad range, but everybody's unanimous about wanting a more equal society. And in order to get um, a fairer and more just uh, society, it does require the government that's been elected to um, have policies that reduce rather than increase inequalities. Again, (laughs) this is Professor Susan Mitchie, and she has been appointed to the WHO Behavioral Insights Advisory Group Right there, she says, I assume that there is a broad spectrum of political persuasions in my group, but on the other hand, we have unanimous agreement that our public health policies need to be promoting equality. Well, when a communist says equality, uh, it doesn't mean equality in terms of we're going to treat everybody you know, with dignity in an objective fashion, we're not talking meritocracy, we're talking redistribution. We're talking redistributive efforts that have to do with wealth and power. I mean, that that is what it is. And to Freddie Sayers' point, 
at Unheard, your politics will influence the kinds of public health policy proposals you issue. I mean, that just is what it is. That is what it must be. Wouldn't you agree? And then her answer is essentially yes, right? Essentially yes. We want a more just and equal society. And so, yes, you know, in, in not so many words or not so few, yes. Take a listen to another little soundbite here. This one from this past week of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis explaining the very low trust in public health experts and public health officials through COVID, why we shouldn't ever trust public health officials like this gal from the UK with WHO. This is Ron DeSantis. They would shame people for even leaving their house in April, May 2020, and you can't do it. And Some people wanted to bury loved ones. They wanted to do this. And the, the argument people were making is, well, wait a minute, I can look at the risk of COVID and it's something that I've, I'm willing to accept because these things mean more to me to be able to bury a loved one or to be able to do things with my family. And, and the public health uh, establishment, oh, no, no, you can't make that kind of cost-benefit analysis. Then when the George Floyd riots were happening, they actually wrote a letter with thousands of these people signing it saying, we do not believe that rioting and protesting is, a, is a bad for COVID, that you can do it, go ahead, because we think it's so important that you have to do it. And then they said, but this doesn't mean we support all protests. If you're protesting lockdown policies or other things, then you can't do that. And that's when I knew these people are a bunch of frauds. And exactly, exactly. So what we had here in the U.S. in particular was a very clear proof of the concern. It's not theoretical. It's not in the abstract. A very clear proof for all of us to see and hear that public health was being driven by politics. If the public health officials felt like the cause of equality and justice would be advanced by telling Certain demographics, you can't go out and protest. You can't get together for a political rally. You can't get together to argue for your inalienable rights. They were told, you are endangering public health. If another group was without masks, without social distancing, going out and setting fire to American cities, looting, robbing, committing acts of violence, then the response from public health was, oh, yes, this should be fine. This is not anything to worry about as far as being a super spreader risk. This actually is advancing public health. So then what you have to do is you have to be asking yourself, what do you mean actually by public health? Like, what Can you define what public health is in your view? And what it really boils down to is something of a metaphysical and political idea and definition of health. Health then becomes a kind of euphemism wherein a lot of communist and anti-Western ideas are smuggled into efforts to disenfranchise conservatives especially, conservative Americans. The revolution requires that we redefine language in general along very Orwellian lines and that where we can use a strong response to dissidents, we will. And where we can coerce people in manipulative ways by changing dictionary definitions or bombarding them with spin in the images that we present to them, creating impressions in their minds like Edward Bernays was an advocate for, then we will do that. But Long and short of it, you've got positive association and negative association to create impressions on both sides. Every proposal we like, we are going to positively associate with public health, and every position that we dislike, we are going to say, you want people to die. You're anti-science, right? So it's very much a word game. It's very manipulative. It's very dishonest. 
But again, this is why we should be reading the Greeks and the Romans, particularly if there is truth to concerns that people have in my circles that we are ancient Rome. We are the ancient Roman Empire right now, and therefore we'll meet a similar end. Now, I would point out, if that were true, what we will expect is a period of dark ages followed by a resurgence of Christian civilization. In other words, the Roman Empire fell to the barbarians, and then the resurgence of Christian civilization was the Holy Roman Empire in some measure. It was Christendom in Western Europe especially. And if America is the Roman Empire pre-fall to the barbarians, or we're seeing it fall to the barbarians right before our eyes, then to say that we are the Roman Empire, (laughs) for one, should compel us to go and study the Roman Empire and where the Roman Empire got a lot of its ideas from the Greeks, for instance. But then for two, we should look at what came after the fall of the Roman Empire. And are we in any measure doing a similar thing to what monasteries and churches and Christian rulers did during the Dark Ages in preserving learning, preserving the truth, preserving reason and rhetoric and logic and the sciences actually not the politicized sciences that are just being used as a kind of siege works against Western civilization. Are we doing the thing that the church historically has done, or are we saying Rome is going to fall and then Jesus comes back and we don't need to do anything? We don't need to be about uh, any effort to love our neighbor holistically by preserving civilization. You know, one of those responses, I think, has merit, but the other kind, when it is coupled with a kind of fatalism that is inactive or passive or just doesn't engage with what's going on in the country right now, I don't think that's responsible, and I don't think that's what God calls us to. I don't think that's what God calls us to, and I also think that there is a lot of potential for Christians to harm and hurt one another in the church if the side that is fatalistic is able to say to the side that wants to get engaged, what I'm doing and doing nothing is the most Christian response. Therefore, what you're doing and doing something is unspiritual and carnal and earthly. You cannot come away from reading The City of God by Augustine of Hippo and conclude that we need to be hands off or bury our heads in the sand. You just can't. His awareness, his being conversant, his taking great pains to explain and unpack and articulate how these things were related, his seeing in the accusation against Christians that they (laughs) were the reason for the fall of Rome to the barbarians, uh, his perceiving in that an attack on Christianity itself and a smear and a false accusation and writing the city of God to provide an apologetic for the truth of Christianity, for the truth of the gospel, needs to be instructive. And uh, not just the fact that we know quick bullet point bumper sticker summaries that Rome fell at a certain point, and so will we. There is more. We, we do need to go beyond just that much. And for that matter as well, you know, <laughs> Imagine if Augustine had had the view that many Christians who are hands-off today seem to, which is Rome is going to fall, and the sooner the better, more or less. Rome is going to fall, and we certainly are not going to try and keep it from falling in any measure, in any degree. If Augustine had written the City of God along those lines— I don't think he would have written it to disagree with the pagans. I think he would have written it to say, yeah, and it's a good thing too. It's a good thing that Christians contributed to the fall of Rome by being so hands-off. But that's not the book he writes in the 4th and 5th centuries. That is not the book he writes. He writes a book saying, no, actually, Christians 
were very faithful public servants and soldiers and citizens, and we preserved virtue. And then the rest of Western civilization over the next 1,500 years bears that out. Christians were serving the public good. Christians were following in the footsteps of God's people as spoken to in Jeremiah chapter 29, seeking the welfare of the city to which Yahweh their God had brought them in their exile, not saying we're exiles, therefore we should be hands off. But along these lines, not only am I going to encourage you to study Augustine directly, don't just take someone else's word for it, don't just take my word for it, there's a lot there in City of God. I would also encourage you, yes, to read the Greek historians and the Roman historians and the Greek philosophers to some extent, at least those who give us an idea of the development of Greek thought and what worked and what didn't, particularly Greek political philosophy, what was tried and what wasn't. You'll get some sense of that uh, in the histories, but you know what was tried and what wasn't successful informed the founding fathers of the United States of America. And that's why they put together our Constitution and our Bill of Rights and our Declaration of Independence and our form of government in the way that they did. It was not for no reason. It, and it wasn't just randomness. It wasn't just, let's just slap things together and, oh, it ha- just so happens to work. No, it was very intentional. It was a very reasonable approach to trying to come up with sound governing principles from reading history, from reading God's word, from studying the statesmen of centuries and millennia past. Now, there's this great quote that I picked up from Os Guinness saying that he who does not avail himself of 3,000 years is living hand to mouth. Johann Wolfgang von Goethe said that. But for our part, if we are availing ourselves of 3,000 years worth of history in a very superficial way, again, I mean, it's like living on crumbs. That's not enough to be nourished by. It's not enough to do work on. And we don't need starvation rations, particularly in this day where we have so much quick and ready access to great books in so many formats. You can order it in print and have it shipped to your house and it'll be here tomorrow or next week at the latest. You can listen to it on audiobook. You can go to Hoopla if you don't have a lot of money to spend on buying books from Audible or other places. Go to Hoopla, use your library card, check out audiobooks that way. There's just too much information at our fingertips to not avail ourselves of 3,000 years and to learn from the mistakes of the past. If our intention is not so much to learn from the mistakes as to resign ourselves to disaster and to do nothing, well then, I suppose it makes sense that we're not availing ourselves. But if the big idea is to be faithful stewards of what has been passed down to us, what we have inherited in order to pass it down to our children as well, to be faithful to God's glory for our neighbor's benefit, if that's where we're coming from, then we do well to study these things. But so also, we we do well, I think, to pay attention to this speech from Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban at CPAC. You know, he came to the U.S., came to Dallas, Texas this past week and spoke at the Conservative Political Action Committee. And of course, the leftist mainstream media has been all up in arms trying to associate him with fascism or anti-Semitism or racism or Christian nationalism or Republicans. If we can just put the whole lot into a basket of deplorables and push them off the cliff, maybe the Democrats have a chance of winning in November after all. But I want you to listen to this little clip here from his speech. I'll post a link to the fuller speech in my write-up at thegarrettashleymulletshow.com tomorrow morning. You can definitely find the full video 
on uh, cspan.org, at least at present. But take a listen. Here is Viktor Orban, Hungarian Prime Minister at CPAC on Thursday. But unfortunately, the left in politics does not know any limitations. And my friends, as it happens, today's progressives try to separate Western civilization from its Christian roots once again. They are crossing a line that should never be crossed. If you separate Western civilization from its Judeo-Christian heritage, the worst things in history happen. Let's be honest. The most evil things in modern history were carried out by people who hated Christianity. Don't be afraid to call your enemies by their name. You can't play safe, but they will never show mercy. Consider, for example, George Soros, as you call him here. In Hungary, in Hungary we call him Yuribachi, which means Uncle Georgie. The wealthiest and one of the most talented Hungarians on earth. Just a hint, be careful with talented Hungarians. Uh, I know George Soros very well. He is my opponent. He believes in none of the things that we do. And he has an army at his service. Money, NGOs, universities, research institutions, and half the bureaucracy in Brussels. He uses this army to force his will on his opponents, like us Hungarians. He thinks that values dear to all of us led to the horrors of the 20th century. But the case is exactly the opposite. Our values save us from repeating history's mistakes. The horrors of Nazism and communism happened because some Western states in continental Europe abandoned their Christian values. And today's progressives are planning to do the same. They want to give up on Western values and create a new world, a post-Western world. Who is going to stop them if we don't? Exactly right. Exactly right. Now, for those of you who have a little bit of a hard time with his Hungarian accent, let me tell you what he just said. (laughs) George Soros, for those of you who don't know, is a Hungarian-American. He's got dual citizenship in Hungary and in America. He's originally from Hungary, but George Soros is Viktor Orban's primary opponent in Hungarian politics. And insofar as Viktor Orban was speaking this week in the US to the world's preeminent superpower, George Soros is Viktor Orban's primary opponent with regards to trying to influence America on the world stage. So Viktor Orban comes to Dallas, Texas and gives this speech. And he says, we could not disagree more, essentially. George Soros, Viktor Orban, we could not disagree more. He believes that the worst atrocities in the 20th century occurred because of conservative Christian civilization. And instead, the fact is just the opposite. You had countries in Europe that essentially gave up on conservative Christian Western civilization. Communism is not an outgrowth of conservative Western Christian civilization in any measure. It is hostile to Western civilization. It is hostile to Christianity. It's always been hostile to Christianity. Marx was decidedly anti-Christian. He actually also was very fascinated by Satan, lo and behold. And I'm not making that up. That is (laughs) legit. One of these days I'll have to do a podcast episode about how fascinated he was with Satan. But for now, I will just say Marx was fascinated by Satan. Adolf Hitler and the Nazis in Germany, they were not trying to promote Christian civilization 
some kind of a resurgence of Christian civilization. What they tried in, instead to do, they tried to hijack the German church to make it a vehicle for national socialism. That's what Nazi actually means. Nazism is national socialism. And our progressives here in the U.S., they want you to focus exclusively on the national part there. So then they want to call Viktor Orban or Donald Trump or anybody who is ideologically, politically, philosophically, religiously inclined to vote for those men or those sorts of men or agree with those men or those sorts of men. They want to say, ah, you are all nationalists. You are literally Hitler. The fact of the matter is that Nazism was socialistic. And that was the big problem with Nazism. Not that they were nationalistic, but that they were socialistic. Also, too, they weren't just national socialists. They were also stuck on a very evolutionary approach to fixing the world's problems. Namely, they were going to help evolution along by removing the weak. War Against the Weak is a great book on this subject, the eugenics movement in the early 20th century. Check that one out, Edwin Black's War Against the Weak. The ideas that the Nazis were running with in trying to take over Europe, in sending people who were mentally ill, physically unfit, ethnically diverse, politically opposed to them, to concentration camps where they then famously and on it industrial scale, gassed them, starved them to death, beat them to death, experimented on them, shot them, buried them in mass graves, burned them to ashes in giant ovens. What they were trying to do was they were trying to solve all the world's problems by getting rid of those deemed unfit to live and those deemed unfit to reproduce. And because they had rejected Christianity, that didn't mean that they were unwilling to use Christianity, so they tried to hijack the German church and to use it as a vehicle. They were going to combine these things together. And many in the German church thought, ah, okay, you know what? In the interest of being relevant, we are going to see how much of what the Nazis want and what they're saying we can work into our sermons, work into our practice, work into our counseling of our church members. We want to be peaceable. We want to submit to the governing authorities. We want to be supportive. We want to be relevant. So we are going to modify our doctrine, modify our teaching, modify our testimony and our way of living. And we're going to be supportive of what the Nazis are doing to that end. But that's a very, very different thing. <laughs> that's a very, very different thing than what progressives are claiming in our day, what George Soros in Hungary and here in the U.S. is acting on in the way of an assumption. It was not because of an excess of Christianity in Germany that the German church tried to get along with and go along with the Nazis. It was because of an erosion of Christian faith. So to his point, if we forget that Western civilization is predicated on Christianity, we will repeat the worst mistakes of the 20th century, namely either actively supporting and furthering Nazism and communism around the world, or B, not taking such efforts to advance those ideologies seriously enough and not responding to them forcefully, clearly. You know, he says at one point here, quote, don't be afraid to call your enemies by their name. They hate me and slander me and my country as they hate you and slander you and the America you stand for. And the big problem that progressives here in the U.S. have with Viktor Orban, so far as I know, is that he is regarded by them as a right-wing Christian nationalist. He has said he doesn't want to bring immigrants into Hungary. Hungary is for the Hungarians. But what that's about is not racial differences 
What that's about is the European Union plan to mass import Muslims from the Middle East and from Africa under the auspices of welcoming refugees. Never mind that we don't have a place for them to live. Never mind that they can't be integrated into society because the language is different. Their values are different. The way that they treat women is very, very different. Their positions on a great many things are very different because they are Muslims and we are Christians. Never mind all that. The EU wants to have all of this Christian civilization pushed out. And truth be told, the mass importation of Muslims into Europe, into European countries, has been part of the way that they were accomplishing or hoping to accomplish pushing Christianity out. Multiculturalism is not the same thing as Christian charity and compassion towards those who are outside of the church. They are not the same thing. They are not the same thing. The only reason we think they are the same thing is because the progressives, the communists, as he calls them, I would agree, have had control of our education system, the levers of power in our government, in our bureaucracies, in far too many of our major corporations, and in the media. But again, you know, you, you look at the whole situation here in the US and in Europe, in countries like Hungary, or in how countries like Hungary are related to, look at the situation and study ancient Greece and the Romans with a view to understanding what calculations are being made here. You know, one of the commenters on the Epoch Times article about Victor Orban's speech at CPAC quoted Marcus Tullius Cicero, I think helpfully, a nation can survive its fools and even the ambitious, but it cannot survive treason from within. An enemy at the gates is less formidable for he is known and carries his banner openly, but the traitor moves amongst those within the gate freely, his sly whispers rustling through all the alleys heard in the very halls of government itself. For the traitor appears not a traitor, he speaks in accents familiar to his victims, and he wears their face and their arguments. He appeals to the baseness that lies deep in the hearts of all men. He rots the soul of a nation. He works secretly and unknown in the night to undermine the pillars of the city. He infects the body politic so that it can no longer resist. A murderer is less to fear. The traitor is the plague. And I quote, Exactly right. There is no new thing under the sun. Interestingly enough, Polybius, in my reading of him yesterday, was talking about the difference in the distinction between traitors, on the one hand, and those who see what is best for their country, all wrapped up in potentially welcoming and making a deal with those who are coming in to take over, those who have a stronger force and are in the neighborhood and without some kind of a deal are going to besiege their city and to what end. But he says of traitors, Polybius does, that for a time they will be useful to those they're working for and working with. And then at a certain point, always traitors become so detestable to those they are working for that they still come to no good end. They still end up being disposed of because their new masters can't trust them either. You betrayed your homeland. You betrayed your people. I will use you, their new master says, for as long as I need to. And then I'm going to get rid of you because if you betrayed your own people, how much more so are you going to be willing to betray me? And so <laughs> the progressives in our country need to be thinking long and hard about who they are working with on a global scale. When they're working with transnational governing bodies, which actually have no jurisdiction here, truth be told, towards the end of manipulating and paralyzing our response to legitimate threats in our own country, what is the end game for you? You're working for communists, you're working with communists, you're doing their bidding, you think 
it's going to go so well for you and that you will be handsomely rewarded, they will not accept back your 30 pieces of silver. And odds are high, either by your own hand or by theirs, your end will not be a good one because you were willing to betray your own people. The communists were not suffering from an excess of Christianity. But those who are Christians, as forcefully as we are resisting and trying to teach our children what God says, we're trying to teach our children the truth about God and his promises and his character and who he calls us to be, we are the ones who are gracious. Confess, repent, turn from your wicked ways, be restored. For our part, as Christians, we do well to be more wise as serpents and less the harmless as doves. We think that being harmless as doves requires paying no attention to these things. And that just isn't so. That's just not so. In hindsight, we can see that a lot of mistakes were made in the lead up to World War II, for instance. I would argue among the biggest mistakes was not just that Neville Chamberlain went over and met with Hitler and wish-casted Hitler's assurances that he would be content at this point and then go no further. It wasn't just Neville Chamberlain coming back home and saying, peace in our time. It was also the fact that the French, right next door to Germany, didn't chase the German army back across the border. Those Initial incursions, trying to test the waters to see what the appetite was to maintain boundaries, to keep Germany in check. Those initial forays were a bluff. The French way outnumbered Germany and could have chased them right back across the border. And if they had, the German high command had plans in place, according to William T. Schurer, to remove Adolf Hitler because they didn't like him either. But there was a moral cowardice on the part of the French, and there was a moral cowardice on the part of the German high command. And so also there was a moral cowardice on the part of the British people because they wanted what Neville Chamberlain was telling them to be true, even though Winston Churchill was right. The Prussian model of public education accomplished exactly what it was designed for. It made slaves out of 99 in 100 of its subjects. And by the time the Nazis were in power, there was so little appetite to stand up and say no to a wicked order, to an unlawful order, that it almost didn't matter what the order was. It could be counted on to be obeyed. You get 1% who has the guts to say, no, this is not happening. I'm not doing that. In fact, not only am I not doing that, I'm going to place you under arrest and relieve you of command, and you're going to stand trial because this is against the law and it's immoral and it's ungodly? No. A lot of people forget that Dietrich Bonhoeffer, even though he was very tolerant and magnanimous towards those who disagreed with him as to what the response from Christians should be to the Nazis, even though he was gracious towards fellow Christians who came to a different conclusion, he was nevertheless part of a conspiracy to assassinate Adolf Hitler. Not a lot of folks emphasize that enough, in my opinion. But you see, part of what was special about Dietrich Bonhoeffer's upbringing was that his grandmother, his parents, didn't send him off to German public schools. They recognized exactly what homeschooling parents for decades here in the U.S. have recognized Namely, that there is a godlessness and a hostility to Christianity inherent to this model of public education. And we here in the United States got our public education system from the Prussians. And who made that call? Who made that recommendation? Progressives here in the U.S., like John Dewey. And they've had a hundred years to implement their plans and their purposes. If we would study the Greeks and the Romans, as well as our Bibles, as well as Augustine, as well as church history, we could acquire the habits of mind and of speech which are necessary for good statesmanship. 
And I think we should. I believe strongly that we should. The West is at war with itself, Victor Orban says. The globalists can all go to hell. I have gone to Texas. (laughs) He said in another place in his speech, You must play to win. Play by your own rules. This war is a culture war. We can't win a culture war if we are not willing to develop culture. If we're just following whatever the culture is doing, then we are not fighting. We are going with the flow. But to quote G.K. Chesterton on this point, a dead thing can go with the stream. Only a living thing can go against it. Are we alive or are we dead? And if we are alive, what are we doing to fit ourselves for service and to think rightly, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that by testing, we can discern what is the will of God? I, for one, would encourage you to join me in studying the Greeks and the Romans, studying the Bible, thinking very intentionally about what God says is true and is good, how then we should live, building Christian civilization, owning good books, homeschooling our kids, loving our wives. In my case, I have a wife. Most of my audience is young men. Love your wife, young men. And if you don't have a wife, you should get one because we need people. (laughs) That's how you get people. (laughs) Unless you're one of these weird progressive communists, in which case I think they have a notion to do the brave new world thing and have test tube babies, sterilize everybody and then only hatch the right kind of folk according to their eugenic assumptions, their evolutionary assumptions. What they have in mind is a monstrous tomorrow. But since I'm throwing out quotes anyways, to quote C.S. Lewis, of all tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. It would be better to live under robber barons than under omnipotent moral busybodies. The robber baron's cruelty may sometimes sleep. His cupidity may at some point be satiated. But those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. They may be more likely to go to heaven yet at the same time likelier to make a hell of earth. This very kindness stings with intolerable insult. To be cured against one's will and cured of states which we may not regard as disease is to be put on a level of those who have not yet reached the age of reason or those who never will. To be classified with infants, imbeciles, and domestic animals. And that is just it. That is how the progressives regard us if Either A, we are not experts like their technocratic ideal calls for, or if we have some education and some bearing and some confidence and we use it to oppose them, we are the lowest form of life, fit only for destruction in their view. We do well, I think, to heed Viktor Orban's warning here. The progressives perhaps should be more rightly called, with each passing day, week, month, communists. All their prescriptions to fix what's wrong with the world are communistic. They have five-year plans here. They're willing and ready to delay practical conversations about how to fix problems of sufficient water for growing crops, for drinking, for powering our hydroelectric dams in the interest of discussing social justice instead. And what we find then is that we're under a kind of siege. And the only way to lift that siege is to throw the whole lot of communists out, remove them, send them packing, send them to those they've been doing the bidding of and let those folk have them. There was a great story Again, going back to Ron DeSantis, Ryan Saavedra over at the Daily Wire wrote a piece 
just yesterday, DeSantis sends police to remove woke Soros prosecutor from office for failing to enforce laws. This also, by the way, is part of why Viktor Orban was invited to speak at CPAC this year, I think, because he can give a credible warning from up close and personal about just what sort of a man George Soros is. George Soros is decidedly anti-Christian in his vision of our brave new world. But DeSantis, by the powers vested in him as Florida's governor, sent law enforcement officers to remove state attorney Andrew Warren of the 13th Judicial Circuit, backed by Democratic mega-donor George Soros. And when I say removed, I mean removed from office. A quote from DeSantis, state attorneys have a duty to prosecute crimes as defined in Florida law, not to pick and choose which laws to enforce based on their personal agenda. It is my duty to hold Florida's elected officials to the highest standards for the people of Florida. I have the utmost trust that Judge Susan Lopez will lead the office through this transition and faithfully uphold the rule of law. In the executive order suspending Warren from office, DeSantis ordered, quote, as of the signing of this executive order, the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office, assisted by other law enforcement agencies as necessary, is requested to, one, assist in the immediate transition of Andrew Warren from the office of the state attorney for the 13th Judicial Circuit of Florida with access only to retrieve his personal belongings and to ensure that no files, papers, documents, notes, records, computers, or removable storage media are removed from the office of the state attorney for the 13th Judicial Circuit of Florida by Andrew Warren or any of his staff. Essentially, the end run done here around our political process is that George Soros has been dumping huge amounts of money into the races for district attorneys. He gets his guy elected, George Soros does, and then that guy proceeds to do an end run around our entire governmental system by deciding to not prosecute whoever he doesn't think should be prosecuted. So essentially what you end up having is a globalist, progressive nullification theory. We don't like those laws, and so we're going to not enforce them. Not because they're unconstitutional, but because like the gal from the WHO nudge unit, Professor Susan Mitchie, they're promoting policies that reduce inequalities as they see it. That's what they've been tasked with. And it doesn't even have to make sense at a local level as long as it helps to achieve the larger goal. You can just shift the definition of success and kick it down the road, kick the can down the road. So long as you can say, ah, this fits into the larger goals that we have, it's fine. It doesn't matter who gets murdered brutally, who gets raped, who gets assaulted, what gets destroyed at a local level. Because in the end, all we really want is diversity, equity, and inclusivity. Or, to put it another way, communism, Marxism. If we want to know what to do about it, we're going to have to study. We're going to have to roll up our sleeves. We're going to have to be willing to tell the truth and to stop being such scared rabbits about things and to stop being so slothful, but to be zealous, to know the truth, to be set free by the truth, to speak the truth, to allow others to speak the truth to one another, to oppose efforts, to quiet those who are talking common sense, to hush them up, to sweep them out of the way. More could be said, more will be said. That's all the time I've got for this episode. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless.
You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.